Hi, with a flick of a switch, we turn night to day and day to night. We can change seasons, actions and states of mind. Light is everywhere. Used endlessly and very much a part of our modern world. But what is it? How do we use it? And how is it changing our environment and our behaviours? A star-filled sky used to be our evening's entertainment. Now it's Netflix, iPads or even a podcast. When was the last time you looked at the night sky? I'm Marnie Og and this is Dark Sky Conversations, the podcast that brings people and science together to shed light. Take two. So for those of you... You have to hear it all again. (laughs) Unfortunately, our first attempt to record this fabulous podcast with Mr Jackson Stingwood didn't quite come to fruition. So we're going to take this all again as if we hadn't heard it before. But Jackson Stingwood is my guest today for the second time. And Jackson, on your LinkedIn page, it says you're a lighting designer slash uh, actually IALD coordinator. So we can go into that a little bit later. But I've always had this, and I really shouldn't have this question, but I really don't know the difference between engineers and lighting experts and light you know, suppliers and everything, but you're a designer. So tell me what the difference is. What is it that you do and how you got there basically? Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, the tradition is so where we talk about sort of lighting within public space and architecture, it was historically always designed by electrical engineers. So it sat with into the engineering field because, um, because of the requirements. And is that because lighting came from, I mean, it, yeah, it, I guess the history of lighting is really interesting too because we were building buildings long before lighting came into place. So, Yeah, great. Yeah. So it's electric lighting. So, you know, I suppose I started being ingrained into buildings in the late 1800s and mm. much more commonly in the early 1900s. And yet servicing engineering, which was HVAC, lighting, all of those things, as they sort of come through in the, in the 1900s, um, became a subdiscipline and sort of segued off from architecture because be- before that it was mostly engineering of mm. building structure and architecture were the two disciplines. And then you had the builder and contractor who would build the actual um, building. So yeah, it's buildings have become so much more complex in the last hundred years, and so all of these subdisciplines have um, sort of segued off from architecture and engineering because. Each discipline has become so complex in that you cannot, as one person, understand all of them or design all of them anymore, like an architect could traditionally do. Hmm. So as it first sort of stemmed off from architecture, it became electrical engineering and they would design the lighting. And then as it became more of a requirement for it to, I suppose, tie into the architecture, relate to the architecture, respond to it in, in a way that's um, unique, then it required a more design requirement. So then you start to see the engineering side being wrapped in with the design side. And that's where lighting design's profession sort of came from. Mm-hmm. And it is sort of a combination of people that just focus on lighting design, but they come from backgrounds such as architecture, interior design, industrial design, theatre, lighting, and engineering, of course. And is... So this is a personal question, I guess, but is there a, someone with a background that might be better at lighting design than others or do they all bring a different view and a different standpoint to it or is it just, you know, do you end up in the same place? Um, it's, it's interesting. I think the fundamental is how you're trained as a professional in how you produce design um, and 
not to the, yeah, I think we're all trained differently, but in architecture, it has quite a rigorous process in how you create a design in terms of what you think about, how it responds to the building, how it responds to people, how do people function within the space? Mm. Um, how does it respond to the urban environment um, and the city as an, as, a, as an organism, basically? This is what you're taught very early in architecture and this is what you drilled into. Your this experience. is your background. You've come from architecture. Yeah, so I, I studied architecture, did my bachelor and master's and then post that worked into line design, which we can talk about a little bit. But um, yeah, essentially... Yeah, I think it comes down to how you generate your ideas and how that responds to the building. Um, obviously, interior design is different because it's it's based on interiors. So definitely, you know, interior designers are, are, are good at responding to interior environments. Architecture is probably a little bit more broad. It's more like you can do interiors, but you can also do exteriors and building facades and the urban environment. Engineering-based background is much more technical, so they understand a lot more like you know, as a fundamental basis on how light is distributed, how it reflects, how it um, is absorbed, and all of the electrical components that sit in a light fittings, the control equipment, and all of those things. Uh, theater designers are very good at understanding how to produce an effect because then they're basically producing scene after scene after scene over a time frame, mm. basically building a piece of architecture every you know, month or so. <laughs> and in, so they're, they're, they're very good at. Um, knowing how to create what they want to create and coming up with sort of ideas that sort of test architecture as well. Mm. Um, and then industrial designers are great at designing custom fittings and things like this as well because if you basically know how all the objects fit together, how all the components go together, how you combine the electrics with the aesthetics and all that sort of stuff as well. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's really... If there's lots of people in the profession at practice design designers that come from lots of different backgrounds, but within the profession, there's lots of different requirements, which projects need as well, which each professional can sort of, um, offer difference. Yeah. 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 And I imagine there's a variety of people in various companies that have, you know, different skill sets as well. So that you, you're, you know, big companies, et cetera, would be able to bring all those skills and all those understandings into a project. Yeah, definitely. Mm. The one firm I started with had all of those backgrounds within it. Yeah, yeah, right. So I've got a question for you, though. You know, if you're someone that plays around with light, why are you interested in the dark? In the dark? Oh, okay. Um, well, yeah, I suppose that's... Um, isn't that a contradiction? Isn't that something that you're not meant to do? You're just meant to put more and more lights in? You can hear the area. Well, yeah, I suppose when you think about the history of it, it's like 100, 100 years or so ago, we didn't have much electric lighting. So you realise very quickly that lighting, like although it offers so many things that we didn't have, it's also the problem. Like recent, like a, if you look at a building form, for example, like the towers that go up in cities now, the floor plate is enormous. It has like a single glass skin around the perimeter and you might be 15 metres from a glass skin in the middle of the space. These spaces can only exist because lighting exists as, it, as electric lighting. Before this, they couldn't build these spaces because you wouldn't be able to get light into the middle of the space. So it was always controlled by the height of the windows and the depth of the space. So if it comes back to your question, it's like why I'm interested in the dark. It's like, well... We've only had lighting for a very short amount of time and we existed quite well. Um, so 
I think that it needs to be a much more considered approach to how we add light and how we control light so that we don't just keep adding and lose that connection that we've always had. Mm. I don't think that's, it's, it's being thought about and, and considered in, in many ways, but it's, yeah, it's a difficult, difficult. So who has to consider it? You know, you've talked about the fact that you're, you know, you're a lighting designer now, you've come from an architectural background. Um, is it the architect that initially has to come up with this to say, look, let's not have a, an obtrusive light footprint in our building or is it the lighting designers or, or is it, you know, it has to be, it has to be right, you know, organic right from the beginning all the way through. So, yeah, it's a good question. I th- I th- well, I think it has to come from the client or the, whoever's commissioning the project. Mm. Or it has to come from even a high level of a standard level or a mandatory requirement, um, which... Is that because it needs a cultural change? Because we've just got used to buildings having lights staring out of them or onto them or from them. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean... See, if we if we think of like keynote projects or projects that set an example for everyone else, they're a very small percentage of all projects. Mm. Um, and most projects, to be honest, are driven by financial. Like, what's the development ratio? And how much can they make out of the building? And what you know, what's the overall cost of that building? Mm. And that's, I suppose, if that's the majority of buildings, and that's that's what we need to be targeting. However, those buildings aren't going to spend additional money just to you know, put a really good control system into their building, which, you know, mitigates the risk of a light pollution from their building without it being a requirement from a higher level. Mm. Interesting. Um, yeah. Well, let's see if we can work on that. Uh, I guess as, as you was talking about that, I was talking, I have, we have been talking to the Green Building Council. Yeah. And, I know, you know, they've now started to adopt the language that this could be could be one of the requirements for green building um, certification that you consider your outward light footprint, um, you know, at, at night um, and and general lighting conditions. Do you need as many lights as you as you have? But it's not a it's not one of the major tick boxes. It's just a, oh, and did you do this? Yeah. Yeah. But it, it, at least it's coming into the consideration. Which, is, yeah, it takes time. I mean, like the new standards have like recommendations in the so areas of this as well. Like in Which the, standards? The, Sorry? The Australian standards, there's, there's multiple different ones, but the, the new external ones that were updated, I think, last year, they have recommendations to be dark sky sensitive and things and how to light for biodiversity. And usually when they bring a recommendation in, the next edition update will usually bring that in to be sort of a requirement of the mm-hmm. standards. So they've kind of one step off a couple of the ones, but there's still, yeah, definitely a lot of work that's be done in the other areas. Is that AS4282 or one of the other sort of? Uh, yeah, this what's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. It controls the future effects of outdoor lighting. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's I suppose it's a industry to see the thing is we have we have what's the intelligence and the control equipment to do this really well mm. like yeah buildings don't need to be on if there's no one in there we have the sensors we have the control equipment we've had it for a very long time it's just yeah things have become so sped up and compressed in their time frames of delivery and getting them operational that a lot of the time they don't get commissioned 
to the level that they should, or if it just doesn't get installed, it gets removed at the last minute. And then they become very, very unintelligent systems of just being on off. And if someone leaves a switch on, then they stay on. Mm. I think there's also a lot of, well, we've always done it this way, or we know this works. Yeah. Um, you know, some people don't want to experiment. And I, and I think the other thing that I've, in fact, I went to a lighting council of some sort. I don't remember which organisation it was, but I went to a dinner once and it was at Darling Harbour and I think I made some dark sky comment and the person opposite me said, but look at what we're looking at. We're looking at a cityscape which is attractive. People come here to look at that. They look, they look at the city lights on the water. They look at the the advertising and it becomes part that becomes the identity of that city which is true um to some extent and I and I always think about that you know what is if we had a city that was completely blacked out would we get I don't know you know we are attracted like when Mm. you're driving to a city when you're a kid I still remember driving to because I lived in the country in Queensland and we used to drive into Brisbane every now and then and I still remember driving there as a kid, just like looking up and being like, oh my God, look at this big city with these lights and Yeah, exactly right. The river sort of wraps around the other reflections and it's quite beautiful. And mm-hmm. yeah, that, that's that's true. Um, it's but it's it's kind of the like now that we understand light at night and how it affects us and how it affects other things and the consumption of it. Like, what's is there a responsibility to reduce that? Like, that it's mm. really because, yeah, it is a commercial entity as well, and they're trying to bring people in and have a nighttime economy. Yeah, they're so always talking about the nighttime economy and how are we going to get it going? And let's do another Vivian show all year round. Yeah, yeah, mm. which, yeah, so it's not about shutting it down all the time, but yeah, if something's operational, it, it should be able to be on, but if something's not operational, and it's like time. Um, it doesn't, yeah, I think that's better. What, one of the best models I saw, and it, actually I experienced it and thought about it, and then I actually heard um, someone from Steenson Varmi actually doing a talk on this, and I was like, yeah, that's what, that's what I was seeing. Because when you go to Prague, they have, I mean, they have beautiful historic iconic buildings on on, a, on the mountaintops and throughout the village and they only light up a certain number of them at a time. Mm. So, you know, you're not bombarded with all the other things. You're actually seeing the highlights of the town yeah. at various stages as well. You know, I didn't realise they actually changed them and I can't remember if it's daily or hourly or whatever, but it's, it is really truly beautiful that the, the the things that you really want to see are really, really shown up beautifully. Um, yeah. It's an interesting idea um, to have a, like a master plan of the city. Basically the brighter buildings were the older buildings. So the elimination of the building was basically dictated by how old it was. Mm. So you have all the historical buildings, which are quite bright. And then if it's a brand new building, it can't just become flashy overnight. It has to go through the process of, being retained by the city because people like it before it can become an object, which becomes part of your own. Interesting. Yeah. 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 Cultural aesthetics. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to Dark Sky Conversations with Marnie Ock. 
We'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors. So that kind of brings me to your project, which I think is fabulous. Your Cry Awards, or is it Cree Awards? Cry Awards. Cry Awards. Yeah. Which you tell us about it. You tell us how it came to be, and and yeah. Uh, so it's CRI, but CRI is like it was play on having a cry, or like something so bad that it makes you cry. But CRI is a lighting terminology, which refers to color rendering index, which is like the very clever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was. It was. Uh, it actually started with the prior afternoon beverage in my court. <laughs> Where the best ideas begin, yeah. <laughs> yeah with David, Bird and Kiri. And, um, yeah, we were talking about all the award ceremonies and going, the award ceremonies focus on, like, the best, right? And the best always usually have, you know, a very good budget and they have a good client and then they're basically like the ideal project, usually. Not always. So when I was like, there's no one focuses on the worst things that actually exist around us and making those things better. And it's basically that we need to start improving from the bottom line as well. We can't just keep awarding things at the top and not worrying about what's happening at a really baseline level. So the idea stemmed that if we created the worst lighting awards. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't have to Even be. nobles. Yeah. yeah, exactly. yeah. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a new project. It could be any existing lighting installation around the city or lack of lighting. So just a space that doesn't have anything that's dangerous or something. And people basically just take a photo and send it in and write a short description and maybe a location of where it is. <clears throat> and um, then we decided that we'd have a little sort of jury of just a couple of um, people within the industry. That- I love it, a jury. <laughs> Not a judging panel, a jury. <laughs> and then we would hold the awards night, which we would um, sort of highlight the sort of short list of entries. People could vote on these entries and then we would announce like um, the, worst, the worst project. And then... We're thinking, I mean, it's working a few different ways at the moment. We tried to kick it off last year, um, but got a little bit held up with everything that went on in Melbourne. With COVID and, yeah. and the world closing down. It was a little bit hard to get out and take photos of bad buildings when you only had a five-kilometre radius. Yeah, we realised that's yeah. winter as well because it gets darker it's a bit um, at night. So running in summer when in Melbourne, you, you know, you have lights on 9 p.m. Um. <laughs> It's it's the um, so yeah it's going to run in winter, and essentially yeah we'll have a short list and from that short list we've also we have a, we'd like to do it as a student program so we're assigning like a senior designer with a team of students from a local lighting course, mm-hmm. and they sort of get paired up and they'll in a very short intensive amount of time like maybe a, a weekend or something we'll design a solution to each of the short list. Um, and then we'll have an awards night, which will be, I think it'd be really fun because it's kind of like there could be a, a lot of good humor and also knowledge about why something is bad. So yeah. to present, okay. It's an educational opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. This is the mm. shortlist of entry. Why do we shortlist the <laughs> because, uh, 
this, this, and this. And then, yeah, then we present all the entries on the wall through projection or something so people could have a look at what was entered. Well, you could just project them onto a building. So then, yeah, then we had, then we had, they got some sponsors on board in terms of um, manufacturers, Australian manufacturers. Um, and the idea was that one of the projects in which the students and the senior designer design that was selected would be then implemented to a certain budget amount. So we would actually rectify um, one of the existing mm-hmm. sites around town. Okay. Something that's um, a better asset for the city. So I'll just go back on a point. Did you say that you would write up why the you said the, the, the top five or the worst five would be written up as to why they were put into that category, what you know that that order. So does that mean that you're basically also giving a prescription as to how to rectify it if those buildings wanted to go back and or and fix it themselves? Yeah, well, that's what I think. If we had the five, we had actually five teams of like a designer paired with students. Mm-hmm. Each team would design a solution, but we could only, I mean, you can only afford to do one. Yeah, to one, but we'd mm-hmm. definitely give the other four designs yeah. back to the building owners or the council, whoever like operates the space, mm-hmm. and they can choose to do it or not. But it's yeah, I suppose the difficult part was how do we approach the people that we want to shortlist and say they've been nominated for the worst lighting award, but we have a solution potentially. Which is we can't even share that yet. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to be involved? (laughs) It's funny because as you were saying this, I was thinking, are you going to cause a bit of war with some of your colleagues that have probably designed these buildings, you know, these these external lighting fittings, et cetera? Well, hopefully, yeah, that's what I, yeah. It's interesting because you say what people think of new buildings or new installations, but it essentially was trying to say anything that exists it could be 20 years old and someone's, you know, the little park space that hasn't been replaced with light things. It's completely dark. It's got a few small spotlights around something, something that's just not great. Mm. It doesn't have to be new. So hopefully there's nothing new that needs to be rectified immediately in which another professional from the light industry has done. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Oops. <laughs> maybe you should maybe you should just sort of cull those ones out. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you have to be quite selective. <laughs> Judicious. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But what I like about that too is that it gets the public involved in that. So they get, as I understand it, it's the public that are going around and taking photos of the buildings that they think. Yeah, intrusive or yeah. I haven't said anyone. Um, I think the website the website is get a kick it again, but um, yeah, it's um, it was a uh, that was the uh, another idea as part of it was to sort of broaden the awareness of the profession. Uh, so if we have everyone to enter, and then we have wine science pair with students, and people understand that oh, there's actually people that that do this. There's a huge interest in lighting in general population, except there's just not a lot of awareness that someone specialises or practices in that profession. Mm. So. And I think there's a, a a void in people knowing that that resource is there to help make that you know that building or whatever it is more more beautiful, um, and save them money sometimes as well. You know, there's opportunities to to use smart lighting and you know. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, I'm just going back to our conversation, and 
you mentioned that you were from Queensland as a lad. Is that do you have any fond memories of dark skies from there, or is that kind of what makes you want to do this as well? So your your experiences. Yeah, I mean, in I, a I, less I, urban environment. Yeah, I think it's definitely. I I do enjoy a dark sky. Yeah. Um, I grew up in Gundawindi, which is exciting. I know Gundawindi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the place that nobody can spell. Yeah. Should have a go. G O O N D O W I N D I. Ooh, close. <laughs> go on. <laughs> Tell me. It's, it's just D I. Oh. Between die window. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's like for some reason. But yeah. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, so it's a small country town, but there's a lot of, I suppose, other industries around there that support it. But yeah, I was only there until I was like six, though. Then we moved to Toowoomba. But both those, I mean, Gunnabin had a great sky. Toowoomba had a great sky as well, because it's not a huge, a huge city. Mm. Um, yeah, it's definitely, I feel, yeah, connected to it. I often go camping or something. And um, yeah. There's kind of a beauty with it that I've always been fascinated. You just, I don't know, I can often stare at things and just <laughs> have my thoughts for a long time. So I yeah. Guess, uh, yeah the same. Like, Bit of reverie. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I guess I, I and I, I'd love to do this. It's only just popped into my head, but a survey of all the lighting designers, because they're, there, there is an entrenchment of some lighting designers that feel that you've just got to light everything up as much as you can. And, you know, I think that's changing um, mm. and maybe I'm talking out of turn, but I'd love to do a poll to see how many lighting designers have an association with the dark sky or, you know, have have it been brought up or have seen it because I, th- I think there's, a, there's certainly a... Uh, a group of people is going to say a majority. I won't say a majority because I don't know. But, but I, I take people out to Siding Spring from cities and I think sometimes, you know, I can't believe these are sometimes 50, 60, 70-year-old people who have never experienced a dark sky. Yeah, it's insane. It's and so if you are working in a field where you're lighting, you know, you're modify, modifying the environment by using light and you've never experienced dark, yeah. You know, how, how can you appreciate it in a way? Yeah. Fully appreciate it. Yeah. yeah, something you don't realize. Like, I'm sure, I don't know if you're the same or not, but because I grew up in the country, it felt like it was always just there. But mm-hmm. not until you sort of come to the sea or until you go to Europe and you talk to people, you show them a picture of the sky. Like, I did a presentation in Sweden when I was, I did a workshop over there and I presented where I grew up in the windy and the nighttime sky there and things. And they were all just like completely like, is that what the sky actually looks like? Mm. like I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> it's not CGI. It's real. Yeah. It's, mm. It just fascinated me that a lot of people, a lot of people within different parts of the world have, haven't experienced that or don't have access to it. Just no. really baffling. No, we're pretty fortunate and I think that's the thing that's driven me into dark sky preservation or, yeah, is just seeing how wonderfully dark Australia is and that we haven't 
you know, we haven't crushed it yet. We've, we've still got the opportunity to preserve quite a lot of it and, you know, the, the land mass itself gives us that, that protection in some ways, but it's very easy to to destroy things before you've, you've even known you've got them as an asset. Yeah. You would have looked at the, you know, the Google Earth sort of maps that you can scroll around of all the nighttime radiation. Yeah. And you can click between like 2020 to 2012. It's just like... You go to like different parts of the world, it's just like in 10 years or eight years, mm. increase is just like, it's yeah. like completely staggering. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's with people like you that <laughs> talk about it. Like, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's the other thing is I think to, to be sensitive to it, like I've worked on projects which, you know, weren't dark sky friendly in my earlier career. Mm. Only through working on those and seeing those projects now that I think I have a different appreciation and different understanding of it. It's like, you know, it's like you need to, you need to fail at something in order to realize why. Mm. Yeah. Um, in that, right. now that the projects I work on that are similar, I'll make sure that they're, you know, controlled at a certain time, turned off at the right time and all, and then, you know, push with the client or talk to them about how to be sensitive to the other environment, things like this as well. Like, it's not like you can't take on those projects. No. Yeah, it's just learning from your mistakes as well. So, yeah, I think it takes time. Yeah. But there, there is a commercial side as well. Like, if you're tendering for a project and the client wants it to be something that operates 24 hours a day, it's a big attraction to the city, and you're a consultant and they ask you to do the projects, like, you're caught in a difficult situation about, you know, saying, hey, maybe we think about it this way, but if they're, if they're driven or that's what they want, do you take the project on or not? And do you? Um, I haven't taken anything on in which that's been a conflict. That's my own practice, no. Mm. I haven't had someone approach me that's been that strong-minded about what they want. Mm. I think the... Um the experiences I've had, and it's certainly I'm not talking about somebody's building, but light pollution is such a novel concept still for so many people that most people will listen to you. Mm. You know, they, they, it's not like mining or, I don't know, I can't think of another topic, but some people sit in an entrenched spot when it comes to some conservation issues. You know, they either for or against or they don't believe in it. But most people haven't heard of light pollution. So there's still an opportunity, there's still a window there to actually talk to people and make a few changes and, you know, even if it's little bit by little bit. And how do you, how do you explain, like how do you get around the pollution part? <sighs> Look, I talk to different audiences in different ways. But I guess a couple of the ways I talk about it is to say, you know, for millions of years we've had a day-night cycle and in just 150 years we've, we've shifted that by using artificial light at night and creating an, a false reality, a false yeah. environment. And that's, you know, like, like everything else, if we pour concrete over it or cut down the trees or anything that we're adapting the natural process, we're, we're changing it. And um, and some people will click onto that. Other people will click onto health, you know, in, implications. Um, yeah. The thing is, is pollution has it has so many different sides to it because 
pollution can be something that affects yeah, humans or can affect biodiversity. It can affect everything around us. It can also, um, pollution is in because it consumes energy and most of our energy still comes from places that pollute or things that pollute. Mm. So there's, yeah, there's so many different factors on how it can affect us or how it can be considered pollution. Is that a really strange segue thought as you were saying that? Not segue, but tangential. I realised that often pollution is caused at the loss of something but at the gain of something else. So, you know, if you think about companies that make toxic substances and all their water runs into water, water flows and catchments that then end up as water-polluted areas... Yeah, so who's getting rich with light pollution? You know, I, I've well, never considered the agriculture. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm. Which I mean, it's something we definitely need to talk about. It's like the because the majority of light pollution comes from public assets. Mm. What I understand is like roads and mm. things like this as well. Sports like, grounds and yeah, you can see that like you fly over any city. What do you see? Like what stands out everywhere? Mm. Your highways and roadways and pedestrian areas and things like this. Buildings, yeah, small park or houses, but yeah, street lighting is a huge problem. It's the main one, yeah. yeah. So who's making the street poles and the and the energy that goes with it? Mm. Yeah, that's right. Although if we all go off grid, and we don't yeah. make sure. Well, this, it's a really difficult. Even getting your head around it, I didn't really get my head around it until a couple of years ago when I went to like a smart lighting summit in Melbourne. And it's a conference I did a talk at, but it's predominantly for like sort of um, councils and government authorities and um, manufacturers and a few consulting firms and things like that as well. Uh, um, and talk to people within councils on how they operate their lighting and things. And, yeah, a lot of councils don't own the asset. They don't own the pole. Yeah. They only own the light fitting. Um, and they're really, most councils are, you know, are quite tight financially. So it's all like, yeah, how much does this cost? What's the cost benefit? Mm. The cost benefit of going from a high pressure sodium or so, you know, metal halide or something which consumes, say, 250 watt down to like a 50 watt LED is a direct replacement. It's a huge savings. That's like, you know, a fifth electricity. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them have gone ahead and done that within their councils because they can see the payoffs. However, the control side of that in actually having a sensor or a, a video monitoring or something that basically tells the system that no one's in that street, mm-hmm. the cars or anything, so therefore everything should dim down, turn off, is a whole different side. It's quite expensive. And, you know, it might take it from a 50-watt fitting down to a 30-watt fitting if it's dimmed or something, which mm-hmm. is really like a very small amount of yeah. saving. So we've installed all this infrastructure, but retrofitting it so it actually turns off or dims down completely is, is a very small cost-benefit to these organisations now. So we're caught in this conundrum of that we have the technology, but the cost benefit to these councils to do the work is, is not worth it. Mm. So it has to be a moral or an ethical obligation to them. Exactly. Yeah. And it's not these fittings are producing the same amount of light as a 250 watt. So it's not like we've reduced 
light. We've just reduced, reduced our consumption, but the amount of light that they're still producing polluting with is the same. Well, and the other thing is that the light often now is going down, which is great. We've reduced our, you know, our light print going up into space to the ISS, but it's going down at a great rate of knots, you know, and the, and the, they've often councils put in a more powerful light at the same distance that they had before. So, you know, houses suddenly have a, their backyard full of, of bright, brighter, whiter light. Yeah, yeah. So I was going to ask you about that because not, not everybody might know about it and I noticed the other day, in fact, this morning as I was on my run, our streets all smart lighting controlled mm-hmm. and you've just mentioned it. But I don't know that everybody knows what that is or, and as you just said, if there's any um, obligation to use it. You know, why would councils even install it? Is it something that automatically comes with the lighting construction that comes, you know, lighting poles that come out now or...? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's definitely a, a possibility, but everything comes with a cost. So, mm. I mean, the difficult part, if you want to like do a really intelligent lighting system, is sensing when to turn off and, and when to dim down, because there's so many different ways. And you know, you have a pedestrian that walks around the corner, had this, mm. from, like you have to have a sensor on that fitting that has this, that, where it senses is very targeted. Mm-hmm. Or you go back to like a visualization system, so it's done with. You know, cameras the same way that sort of cars are doing now in terms of detection of objects is that you have image recognition and then that turns on the system. But these systems are you know, quite, especially the image recognition is still in its infancy and I suppose in development and, and quite expensive. But in the future, yeah, I think in probably four or five years, there's, yeah, we'll definitely have more economical solutions to these problems. And they can be retrofitted. Mm. Essentially, that technology can be retrofitted, and then you put a, like a sensor on top of the existing fitting that forms a Bluetooth mesh network, and then they start talking to each other. Mm, clever. Yeah. These are all options available now, but yeah, they're just very cost prohibitive for a lot of councils, unless they're major city councils or they have a big jurisdiction. Mm. The issue in Melbourne is we have lots of very small councils, as opposed to Brisbane that amalgamate all the councils. Massive. Mm-hmm. Basically goes all the way down to the Sunshine Coast, doesn't it? All out. Yes. So I have a street with smart lighting yeah. and a street light that that pours yeah. light into my bedroom every night. And every night I go to bed and I think, why the hell aren't we using this smart lighting? And so if yeah. others, people could help you out here. Like, <laughs> I've run my council and they've just said, oh, it's just standard. And it, you know, we're not going to make any changes to it. I kind of wonder why would you do a whole area of smart lighting and not use it? Yeah, that's the operational side, which yeah, I, it's it's either just they've got too much in their play they haven't around to it, or the councils. The other thing with the really small councils is the teams that they have in there are all the same. So if you have a small council area, you can only afford to hire so many people. If you have a big council like Brisbane, you can employ line designers and things because your team's huge. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of a... It all comes back to money. Mm-hmm. It does. And, and, and knowledge as well. So, I, you know, I, I think I was teaching this guy a little bit <laughs> about, you know, just general concepts and, you know, what I was asking for. Oh, I have to look into that. I have to look into that. Now, I don't know what level he was. Yeah, but I I certainly understood people's frustration when they 
try and when they try and talk to their council about changing lights or modifying them or even checking to see that they're actually working correctly, there's a there's another language around it that the public don't always know. And then, you know, often you don't have any rights and often the council doesn't have any rights as well. You know, it's not them that installed it. It's Ausgrid or Energy Australia or whoever it is that's put it in. And, yeah. It's just why what you're doing is so important, the education part. Like once people become aware of it, then I think that becomes quite sensitive to it. And the more people that ask for it, the more that change has to occur. Yeah. yeah. It happens on projects all the time, like the project with the city of Melbourne, which I never told you about the signage project. So basically they were updating their policy for signage. Mm-hmm. And initially it's a bit of signage, okay. But you just don't really, like you realise once you start thinking about it, it's like a huge part of the city's lighting at night is signage. <laughs> you mm-hmm. signage everywhere. It's all illuminated. Then you have digital signage assets now, like screens that are placed everywhere. And lit up at daytime temperature, you know, daytime yeah. so that everyone can see it and that doesn't change at night. So you can actually, you know, yeah, you've got a sundial in the middle of the night from it basically. Yeah, yeah so yeah. Um, as part of, I, I ended up with an urban design company to do that project and, yeah, it's just, um, they brought Kelly Penville on board, you know, you can, of course, mm-hmm. uh, the professor chef that's from the University of Melbourne. Um, so, yeah, Kelly's been on the lead. Biodiversity and things like that. It's mm, total ecology. Yeah, and then Professor Shant is more of the effects on humans. So lots of research into that for many, many years. And they both presented to the city of Melbourne and conveyed that basically, if we don't reduce the amount of artificial light at night within the cities, it's actually health risk for the people that live within there. Mm. How did that go down? It well. Their response to it was more that we we need to com, you know reduce it because the city of Melbourne's um, very uh, they they have you know they're very focused on having residents within the city and always mm, so mm. not for it just to become a commercial space. So yeah, we created all these different zones and sort of maximum levels within these zones that would be permitted of ambient lighting and then different operational times for signage and. Yeah, most of the areas that with the new policy, which hasn't, it takes multiple years for policies to get pushed through. Um, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's to turn a lot of it off if it's not operational. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah, they were really responsive. And if the other, right. yeah. even people passing through this, if you're traveling through for 30 or 40 minutes on your way home and you had a bus stop with a signage mm-hmm. face in a, in a warm color temperature, you're there for 20 minutes waiting for a tram. Then how are you going to sleep in another half an hour? Yeah. Um, Abraham Heim came and talked to a conference a few years ago up at Siding Spring, riding the light wave of technology, and his research was a lot to do with, well, actually he was very diverse from birds and insects all the way through to humans, but he was particularly interested in human studies and with light. And one of the statistics he told me or told the audience was, uh, that they tested melatonin levels in women after going to a grand final event, you know, with all that huge amount of light in the stadium, you yeah. know. And apparently they didn't go back to normal patterns for three days. Wow. 
Yeah, because a lot of little things, because they're, they're insane. Invention, which is yeah. a thousand bucks and pitch at all directions. So the amount of work. Yeah. Yeah. And you're often, you know, you might be there an hour before, it might take you half an hour to get out of the stadium. Um, yeah. I mean, there might I'm be other things. Advanced. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. actually, the game was just a lot of. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, we, we're That's really cool. still learning. Anyway, I, I'm just going to end this up on just your final point, Jackson, if you actually, before I forget this, because I will forget, I must tell our audience to go to the Australasian Dark Sky Alliance YouTube channel and look for your wonderful webinar that you did for the Australasian Dark Sky Alliance on your light rights with David Byrne, which is great. It was really nice fireside chat with you talking about, you know, people's rights with light and, and and maybe that's where we end up by just what what do you want people to know? What what are they? You know, what do you want someone to take away? Um, yeah, I think uh, it's interesting. That's a really good really, it's really wide, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. But I think it's yeah, the fundamental is that we lived without electric lighting for a very long time. Where we've existed with it without it for a year until 150 years ago, for a, hundreds of thousands of years before that. And we existed quite well, and our bodies are used to living like that. Then they change in 150 years. Um, and people often think they need more light to see something or to, to do something a task. Um, when if you reduce the light and you just view it for five minutes, you'll you'll quite, you know, you'll often notice that it is enough. So adding more is, is not often the solution. Just let your eyes adjust. And, um, yeah, it's, I think that's the fundamental is I, I don't think we need more. People often think we need more, but we don't need more. We just, we just need it to be better controlled and in the places that we need it. And then we can live with actually a lot less. Perfect. A lot less, and then we can see the stars. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. exactly. Well, thank you, Jackson. I really thank appreciate you. chatting with you. And yeah, um, yeah. we'll uh, catch up sometime soon, I'm sure. Oh, I should say, too, you're on the um, Australasian Dark Skylights Technical Committee. Yes. Uh, figure out when the next meeting is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Excellent. <laughs> All right. We'll catch up soon. So, well, thank you.